Welcome to the Sun and Moon Sober Living Podcast. This is an inclusive space where we dive into many themes related to addiction recovery and holistic sober living. My name is Mary Tilson, your host, and today's guest, Sarah Drage, is an incredible force for ending the stigma around addiction recovery and normalizing conversations about mental health. In this episode, Sarah shares about how losing her father to alcoholism shaped her life and ultimately became the catalyst for the impactful work she does today. She is a TEDx speaker and also the co-founder of Warrior Kind, a platform focused around sharing stories, providing access to education, and building community. This is such a deeply personal and insightful conversation that I'm so grateful to be able to share with all of you. So let's get into the conversation. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. It's so amazing to have you on here sharing your story. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. So I first came across your TED Talk, as you know, when I was doing some research on the stigmatization of addiction. And your message was so bold and it really stood out to me. And I think it would be really helpful for people who are listening who might not know your story for you to just share a little bit about your background and what you've experienced that's led you to become an advocate for the recovery community and for mental health? Of course. So I, um, I lost my dad, sadly, in 2017 to alcohol use disorder. Um, and prior to his death, we never really understand, uh, understood the severity of his illness. Um, we were quite naive to what he was going through. Um, and I, I'll be really brutally honest, I was very much under that um, mindset that my dad was self-inflicting his illness and that he was doing it to himself. And why can't you just stop drinking, just snap out of it? All of those kind of really um, stereotyping comments I, I made to him. I was under that mindset that he could just stop. Why couldn't he just stop? I couldn't understand um, so my dad was physically dependent on alcohol, which um, meant that if he stopped drinking at any point, then he would have suffered real serious withdrawal symptoms, which is what happened towards the end. So we know at the end of his life that he was drinking at least to a vodka a day. And I think looking back on it now, he suddenly stopped because he got frightened of the symptoms, the withdrawal symptoms. Um, but weeks prior to that, I felt like, pouring his alcohol down the sink would be helping him I didn't realize that that would contribute towards speeding up a process which could kill him I just didn't have that understanding and awareness I'm not sure what the rules are in the states but in the UK cigarettes are covered with a screen and there's warning labels attached to them everybody is taught that smoking kills I mean there's so many campaigns with the NHS to say um, to notify the public of the dangers of smoking um, you can't actually see cigarettes, they're all covered, there's labels attached to them, there's graphic images attached to them of people's lungs um, when they've smoked all their lives. But with alcohol, it's, it's everywhere you go. You can get spirits in your local supermarket and they're usually, I mean, if there's any big event on, if there's a football match on or it's Christmas or any kind, like any holiday season, you can guarantee that the alcohol will be at the front of the store as soon as you walk in right so there's never that education there attached to alcohol like there is smoking and at the same time it's the most it's categorized as one of the most dangerous drugs in the UK it comes above crack and heroin 
not because of the dangers it causes the user, but the repercussions that it also has on society. So domestic violence, car accidents, drink driving. There's so many. It goes so much deeper than what we see at the, at the, at the surface of it. So I didn't understand. We didn't understand as a family. But we also missed that my dad had a lot of underlying trauma and anxiety and depression, which he used alcohol to cover up that. So there was already another stigma there that my dad was a middle-aged man. It was taboo to talk about his mental health. He he was just not brought up in that generation to talk about his feelings. Um, he comes from, he came from the North of England as well. So it's even more of like a, a real kind of macho stereotype that men don't talk about their feelings. So we were suckered into that stigma. We were as well. We didn't understand the dangers of his illness. We didn't understand the dangers of his drinking. Um, so when he hit rock bottom and he peaked on his final binge of his life, we just assumed that, okay, we'll take you to the hospital and they'll give you a detox and you'll come off of it and that'll be fine. That, that'll be it. Um, but actually, it was so much more deep-rooted than that. And by this point, the damage had already gone too far. Um, so, I mean, I, I should really put a trigger warning before this. I mean, are you happy for me to talk about the hospital process? Yeah, and, absolutely, yeah. whatever you're comfortable with. So um, when, um, when my dad, towards the end of my dad's life, I had a phone call from my sister and she said, you need to get up to the hospital. Dad's in a bad way. So I got there and I saw him and he sat up. But this time he looked different. So he wasn't with it mentally, but he wasn't drunk either. I, and I think looking back, he was showing all the symptoms of um, alcohol induced dementia. So he didn't recognize me, for instance, when I, I ran up to him and gave him a cuddle and I thought, my God, thank God you're sat up, you're fine. It's not that bad. I, I actually thought it wasn't that bad. Um, and he looked at me and he looked straight through me and he was vacant. And he just said, I need my car keys. I need to see if my girls are okay. Meaning me and my sisters. But we were all around him and he's looking at us like he doesn't know who we are. Um, so that was the first sign that things were bad um he was very cold and clammy and like really cold I remember saying to the nurse can we get him a blanket like he's freezing um and when you check somebody into A&E uh, at our local hospital it's not very anonymous you don't do it in private you do it in a waiting room where there's a load of other patients sitting waiting to be triaged so everybody knew the reason why he was being checked in and you have to kind of speak up a little bit because there's a glass screen in front of the receptionist so it's not like you can do it discreetly so that's we've said to the um, receptionist and the triage nurses why he's there and so many people would shake their heads they tut um roll their eyes we even had paramedics shake their heads and it's almost that thought process and I can just hear it because it was said after he died, they're wasting NHS time. Like he's done this to himself. We're waiting to be seen and they're dealing with an alcoholic. Like, you can just hear it. Like, oh. And it was at that point I, I looked around and everything was in kind of slow motion. And I thought, this is why you didn't want to come to hospital because days prior to that hospital admission, 
I actually saw my dad in a bad way at home and I said to him that we need to call an ambulance we need to get you to A&E I think you have liver failure and he kind of for the first time in our relationship in a long time he kind of took that parental role back because I was I felt like I was the parent I was very much the one trying to fix him I was always arguing with him um I say I didn't understand that he had an illness I didn't I didn't understand that it it was as like the severity of it but I still tried to help him I still tried to fix him um and I became the parent I was the eldest daughter. My mum and dad had separated. Um, we kind of took control of that, but he took that back and he reinstated that parental role figure, so to speak, and said, and snapped at me. He shouted at me and he said that I will not get in the ambulance. If you call me an ambulance, I will not get in. I've done this to myself. I will get out of this myself and I do not want to waste any doctor's time. This is self-inflicted. So even he had that mindset mm. and even said to me, it's my weakness. I'll get over it. Um, and at that point I said, right, well, I can't watch you do this to yourself. And I walked away and it took me a lot, a lot of therapy to forgive myself for that because I blamed myself for walking away. I, I even, I still have moments and I think trauma will stay uh, I feel like I've healed as much as I can, but I think that it will always be something that will stay with me. There's, there are moments where I'll be, I don't know, doing the housework and I'll all of a sudden get this overwhelming surge of guilt that will just snap through me. And I'll think I should have called the ambulance. I should have called the ambulance. Um, but I didn't anyway. So we're, we're in A&E at this point and he just kept getting worse and worse. And he was moving from, um, like we have different stages within um, the hospital. So he went to majors and then he went from majors to resus. And he was in resus. And I'm thinking, why, why have they put him in resus? Like, what do they think he's going to stop breathing? What, what's going on? But what had happened is his liver was failing and all the um, toxins and the fluid were accumulating in the rest of his organs. So at this point, we had two surgeons in a room with us amongst other doctors and nurses who were fiddling around with wires because he was bleeding internally. Um, and I still didn't believe that we'd lose him. It still wasn't computing. It still wasn't registering that this is serious because my mindset was alcohol can't be that bad because there's no labels attached to it. Like there are cigarettes. Nobody talks about it being that dangerous. So it can't be that bad. Surely you'd have to drink like gallons of the stuff for you to for it to kill you so I wasn't taking it seriously and um at this point there's two surgeons and they're saying like my dad's lungs were filled with three quarters of fluid and he showed me the x-rays and you could see the shadows on both lungs and again still wasn't computing so they moved him from resus and they moved him to um a ward and then within hours of being on a ward he's in intensive care on dialysis and again, I still wasn't registering. I'm thinking this is precaution. They're doing it for precaution. Um, so that next day I went to see him in intensive care. And by this point, as I walked into intensive care, there's curtains drawn around him and out comes a tired looking um, defeated surgeon. And he just started reeling off all the stuff that was wrong with my dad. Um, everything that was, all the organs shutting down. And I just stopped in midway and I said, is my dad going to survive this? 
And he looked at me and he just said, your dad has a 10% chance of surviving this. That's if he doesn't die when I put him on a life support machine. Well, at that point, I just had to walk out and I thought, well, I can't, I can't listen to this. And I went and saw my dad and I and I feel selfish because I it was it dawned on me then how bad of a place my dad got himself into. It dawned on me how much he must have been hurting. I mean, I suffered with anxiety at that point anyway. My anxiety, I had health anxiety, um, which was a manifestation of, which we now know, is, was a manifestation of my dad's drinking because I couldn't control that. I applied all of that worry onto my own health. Um, so I was already in a bad place, but I weren't doing anything about it. Um, so I went, so I kind of understood in a way it's all started it all started falling into place and I started thinking well I take antidepressants for my anxiety and my dad was of the mindset that that was a weakness you shouldn't be taking anti-anxiety medication and he used to say to me he drank to forget and all those little things that he'd say to me started coming back to me and I thought he must have been in so much pain to get to this point he must have been hurting so much and we missed it um and again that consumes me with guilt it's taken a lot of therapy and a lot a lot for me to accept that it wasn't my fault it wasn't our fault we we did all we could or we did all we felt we could at the time um so yeah I was begging him to survive and fight it but at the same time I felt like I can't ask him to survive or fight this. He's in so much pain. And even if by a miracle he does get through this, the lasting damage that this is going to have on his body and his brain, like you hear of so many stories of people um, going that far with their alcohol addiction and they don't return from that. They don't, they go through life support and they come back and they might have alcohol induced dementia or I, I like the thought of that and sorry I, I I just felt really selfish asking him to survive so at that point I just said to him you don't have if you don't want to dad you, you don't have to keep fighting we'll be fine like you can you can go if you, if that's what you want um and I couldn't watch I couldn't watch anymore so I walked away um luckily I had my I have a great husband a great support network for me is absolutely amazing and he um he did all the talking with the doctors after that and he was incredibly close with my dad as well um and he convinced me to come back and say goodbye properly and hold his hand as we switched off his machine um and it was at that point switching off that machine and telling everybody telling people how he died and then the comments we got from people where they'd say you know your dad this did this to himself he only had himself to blame and it was self-inflicted and that started getting me thinking about smoking and eating the wrong foods and people who do adrenaline sports like does that mean they don't deserve to be treated because they've got I don't know smoking induced lung cancer does that does that mean they've self-inflicted that and they don't they don't deserve that sympathy like no it felt like my dad wasn't getting that sympathy he wasn't getting that respect because it was you know he did it to himself it was his own fault and that was really tough to get like all already we we're dealing with the guilt ourselves and we're dealing with my dad's death we're also dealing with the fact that my dad had reclused himself for 15 years there weren't many people around us 
to support us through that or many people to support my dad or even attend his funeral so that was really tough um and really affected our grieving process so it was at that point that I realized that I wanted to do more for my dad I wanted to honor his memory and by doing that I it I kind of felt like I was at a crossroads. I kind of felt like I could go down one route and end up like my dad because I'm very much my dad's daughter. I'm very much, I have his personality. I know in other ways that I have an addictive personality, which is why I don't drink. It frightens me. Um, I think I could very much, if I go down that route, I could very much end up like that. So it's that it scares me. Um, so my body automatically or subconsciously rejects alcohol. So if I drink anything, then I'll, even one glass of anything will give me a headache or make me feel sick. Um, and I just feel like that's a subconscious rejection. And maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I, I am frightened of it, but maybe I resent it for killing my dad. Um, so I, I didn't want to go down that route. And as well, I didn't want my dad's death to then affect me so much that it then affects my children because then the trauma is inherited and mm. it just continues and the vicious cycle continues and I didn't want that and again at that point I mean I was very scientifically minded prior to my dad's death I have a bachelor of science degree in criminology and forensics so I fought very scientifically but following his death I became a little bit more spiritual and I kept thinking well if he's around me and if he sees me hurting and in pain, that's going to really affect him. I don't, and I know, we knew how much my dad loved us. He was so sensitive. Like he was such a loving dad, despite the drinking. Um, and I knew that would absolutely tear him apart if he knew that his death had affected us to the point that we were going to go on like a downward spiral. So I knew that I didn't, that wasn't an option for me. Um, so... I kind of channeled everything into my advocating work, like the campaigning around the stigmas attached to it, because I strongly believe that stigma affected all of us and it killed my dad. Because when I said at the beginning that my dad felt it was a weakness to go to hospital, if he didn't feel that weakness, if he didn't feel that shame, then he would have gotten help years ago. And maybe he would have taken that antidepressant. Maybe he would have gotten the mental health support that he needed. He would have worked through his trauma. He would have gotten the support he deserved and that he was entitled to. And he wouldn't have drank to forget. So Absolutely. that's why I kind of, like, yeah, I just, I, I went for a stage of feeling very angry towards people who were in that mindset. But my husband really kind of, pulled me out of that patch and kind of said to me listen you, you can't get angry at these people because you used to think like that you need to mm. provide education you need to share your story and tell people what you've learned because your dad was shamed into silence we were shamed into silence I mean alcohol use disorder affects the entire family like those around oh, yeah. like, all of us around my dad we were all affected in some way I had anxiety in like which was a manifestation of my dad's drinking I felt powerless I felt out of control I felt I mean as a teenager growing up with that I used to spend a lot of time in my bedroom just getting away from it because of the atmospheres and the moods and even now I'm still affected because 
I am so sensitive to people's moods. I get so on edge and paranoid so mm-hmm. easily because I keep thinking, because the association of a bad mood to me is negative, mm-hmm. which I'm currently working on because yeah. I can't apply. Yeah, so it's it's it does. It has a lasting effect. So I feel like I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent, so I apologise. No, thank you so much for sharing so openly. And, you know, that's what really has struck me about you is how generous you are with sharing your story. And I think a lot of times, especially, I think sometimes people think it's hard for the person who's actually going through the alcoholism or addiction to to speak openly and share. But there's also this culture of secrecy that happens within the family, you know, to, to try to protect that person. So I was curious because you touch on so many important points about how our society talks about alcohol and how it's marketed and how it's not more like the dangers that aren't marketed. So when you were growing up and, you know, witnessing this happening, at what point did you start to realize that it was problematic and not just the way maybe everyone else's parents were drinking or like, how did that feel for you? Um. I think it was quite late for me to, I think I was about, I was 21, 22. And it when it was when I'd just fallen pregnant with my eldest. So I felt pregnant while I was still at university. Um, I moved out at 19 and I moved out because I felt like I had to, I felt like I had to get away from that environment. I loved my dad dearly. I really did. I loved him so much. But I couldn't be around him when he was drinking like that. But even then, we, we were still in denial. We were mm. still denying that it was a real issue. We never really admitted that, okay, he, he's an alcoholic. Like, he's addicted to alcohol. All the signs were there. All the symptoms were there. But the stigma, a kind of shame does into silence as well and kind of prevented us from admitting it to ourselves, let alone anybody else. Um. My mum and dad separated and my dad's addiction peaked like it probably the worst it got in. And I just found out I was pregnant and um, I found out Christmas Eve and the Christmas day I spent with my mum and dad. My dad was in such a bad way. Um, He spent all day in a dark room, curtains drawn, drink in his hand, reminiscing about the past. And I'm sat there thinking, oh, my God. I'm pregnant, I'm still at university, we're still living with parents, what am I going to do? And then I looked and I thought, and he's got a problem, I can't live here, I can't. And it was kind of them where I thought, he's got a drink problem, this is serious. And then when I, but we still ignored it because I didn't want to deal with that. Was that something that you all had, were you all, did you all have the, the same view in your family on how it should be addressed with your dad or did that cause some conflict between you guys um I think we were all kind of on the same page I think we we all knew there was an issue we just didn't know how to approach it we didn't Mm -hmm. know we didn't know what to do again we didn't realize it was an illness we didn't realize that um his trauma was affecting him like if if I like knowing everything I know now I would know what to do Mm -hmm. but Back in 2012, or we didn't we didn't understand it. We we didn't. Oh, it's 2011. Even there wasn't that much awareness, especially in the UK. There wasn't anybody talking about their mental health. If anybody, I remember being 
on my way to university and hearing somebody on the radio talk about having depression and I used and I remember actually rolling my eyes going oh I Mm. I was sucked into the stigma do you know like how bad is that like it's so I was of that mindset and I used to think you just need to think differently be more positive like just snap out of it dad like you're there's worse off than you I said the worst things like I'm ashamed of myself and I I can't advocate what I'm advocating for without admitting that I used to do that because that's just really hypocritical of me um so I'm honest and I share that because I believe that I can't preach I'm not preaching but I can't say what I'm saying um, when I used to think like that because I've learned so I'm just sharing what I've learned what I've um, experienced and how it affected us and what that mindset did to us as a family it prevented us from asking for help it prevented us from admitting to anybody we brushed it under the carpet we all did um, and I said that in my TED talk I said we all um, kind of ignored it we fed the stigma by ignoring it and staying silent um, and when I had my eldest and the love that you feel as a parent and the love that the unconditional overwhelming love you have for that child, I then started to resent him because then I, then I started to think, I love my daughter so much. I could never put her through what you're putting us through right now. How could you do this to us? So then I started getting angry at him. And I remember when she was baby um, and my, by this point, mum and dad, they'd gone their own ways. And it was like me and my, um, other sister like where my dad has three girls um I'm the eldest and it was me and my middle sister kind of took the reins in terms of looking after him and doing like the, the things that I don't know like making sure that he was um finding a job or that he was eating properly all those kind of like we were mothering him um and taking care of him And I remember allocating myself certain times to worry about my dad because I could tell it was subconsciously consuming me. I knew, I knew subconsciously that if my dad didn't get sorted or he didn't get the help that he needed, then there was only one way out for my dad and it would inevitably be death. I knew that subconsciously, but it was almost too difficult to deal with and process and um, because how can you help somebody that's refusing the help, but also they're not admitting it to themselves? We're not admitting it to ourselves. We're kind of just polishing, like covering it in glitter and pretending that everything's okay. It's what we were doing. Um, and I would say I was around 25, 26 when... Um, I realized that it was a drink problem and we actually I actually threatened or we we blackmailed him but at this point and um, into getting help and we knew my dad's weakness was his daughters and his granddaughters I'd had my youngest by this point I'd suffered with perinatal anxiety throughout my entire second pregnancy and postnatal anxiety and depression so I had a better understanding I was a lot more compassionate by this point. Still didn't understand it properly, but I was more compassionate and understanding for mental health. So I tried a different approach with my dad. I tried being more loving. I tried being more understanding, but that wasn't working. So he turned up to a family holiday, really drunk. um, And I took him home and said to him that it's best you don't come because it's going to take you the entire holiday to sleep this off. 
and we'll deal with this when we get back. And when we got back, I removed myself from the situation and my sisters did as well. And we didn't talk to him. And we said to him, we're not going to talk to you until you admit that you need support and that you have a problem because all the time we're allowing this, we're just enabling your addiction. Um, so we removed ourselves and it took three months for my dad to pick up the phone and say to me that um, I'll do anything you want me to do because losing my girls is nothing in comparison to what I've been through. Um, and I thought, great, brilliant. He's gonna, and he, he said to me, I'll, anything you want me to do, you name it, I'll do it. You can take over all my doctor's notes. I'll go to the doctor. I'll go to a rehab clinic. I have a drink problem. I know I have a drink problem. Um, if it means losing my girls and I've got nothing else to live for. So we did it. And he was sober for 12 months. And what we very naively got sucked into was that, oh, he's not drinking anymore. He's no longer an alcoholic. That's it. He's, he's fine. And I remember somebody saying to me once, oh, your dad will always be an alcoholic. And I got offended. I was like, how dare you? How dare you say that? You, you don't know my dad. He's not drank anything for 12 months. And they said, all it takes is one traumatic event and he'll go back to it. And I was so angry at that person, but they were right. Because that's what happened. It happened because we, we didn't treat the trauma. We didn't treat the anxiety, the depression. He had no coping mechanisms. He had no way to handle all of that. He suddenly did, lost his crutch. Sorry. Did he have an aftercare program or was he integrated into a community or working a specific recovery program? No. So he took the detox medication um, and that was it. He took medication, he came off the alcohol, needed 12 months of sobriety um, on his own. And looking back on that now, there were signs there, um, very clear signs that pinpointed um, PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um, it just, again, the stigma of talking about your mental health, especially in my dad's generation, it just wasn't the done thing. Um, we lost his dad, my granddad, in March 2017. And that is when things started taking a downward spiral again for my dad. He started drinking again. Um, I could tell, and I can't, again, I didn't want to, I didn't want to admit it, but I could tell from a phone conversation I had with him. Um, because I know it sounds really strange, but I was so in tune with my dad and I'd lived with his addiction for 15 years. I knew his drink, I knew, and we used to call it his drunk voice. I knew when he'd been drinking. He mm. could pick up the phone to me and he could say one sentence and I could tell you straight away whether he'd been drinking or not. My husband used to think, you're mad, how how can you tell that? He's all, he's, you've had literally been on the phone to him for 30 seconds. How do you know that? But I just do. I know, I can tell, you, you don't understand, I can hear it. Um, and I was right, he he was drinking again, but this time where he detoxed for 12 months and prior to that detox, he was only drinking very weak, um, like he was drinking cider, lager, beers, wine. Um, he actually, this time, that didn't have an effect on him, the desired effect that he, he wanted. So he, he went for something a lot stronger and he was um, drinking a litre of vodka a day that we know of. Um, and he was drinking that neat before he died. Um, so 
yeah, I would say it was my mid-20s. It was a very long answer to your question, sorry. It was, I was 25, 26, and I realised it was an issue. And I was 27 when he died. And during that whole time, you know, the emphasis, I'm sure, is, you know, so obviously it's going to be on the person who's struggling. Were you, how were you looking after yourself? I mean, did you, did you have anything in place to support yourself and your own mental health? Did you go to groups like Al-Anon, which for those who don't know what that is, is a support group specifically for loved ones of those struggling with addiction? No, I had nothing. Apart from I was taking anti-anxiety medication. But at that point, it wasn't working properly because I weren't treating. I weren't mm. treating the internal trauma and I weren't getting to the root cause of that issue. It was kind of masking it. But no. And as well, I didn't want to go to any groups because I felt talking about it was being disloyal and disrespectful to my dad. Wow. I felt that if I went and sought help for myself. And again, the other side of that is I didn't realise at that point that my dad's drinking was causing my anxiety. I blamed mm. it on pregnancy. I blamed it on becoming a mum. It wasn't. It was so far deep rooted. And we've, we've got to that point now. We understand it now, which is why I say to people that I actually think my dad's death saved me. And as I'd give anything to have him back, of course I would. I, I would, I never ever wanted this. I absolutely loved my dad like more than anything I would give anything to have him back but the silver lining is my dad's death kind of taught me so much it taught me empathy it taught me compassion um it taught me to be open-minded and to not see things so narrowly and on the surface to go beyond that look deeper into things it opened my eyes up to being a more spiritual person um I, following his death, I got support for my own trauma and my own anxiety. And I, I, and I got help for the health anxiety and it worked. And I think a lot of the time I, I look back at that and I think, had that not happened, where would I be now? I mean, I, I strongly believe that his death saved me. And I think if you knew that, I think he'd have died 10 times over, if I'm honest. I think there's so much, it was such a tragic situation. It, it was an awful situation, but I feel like there's good that's come out of it. And I'm determined for the good to come out of it because I want his death to have some kind of purpose. I don't want him to just be another statistic. And maybe I don't know whether it's a selfish thing or not. Maybe it's the guilt that consumes me, but I feel like this is what I can do for him now. I couldn't do it when he was alive, but I can do something for him now. And I don't want his death to be another statistic where we just don't talk about it and we brush it under the carpet and we don't tell people how he died because it's we're ashamed of it. I want his death to have some purpose, to be a catalyst for positive change, for something to come out of it. And he always used to say, look on the bright side, take the positives from the negatives. And that was my dad's philosophy. So I think... I'd be doing an injustice by not saying anything and we need to learn from these things right like we we can't Absolutely. we we have to learn from this otherwise it'll just carry on repeating itself and I think that yeah his I, I'm thankful to him because I think he saved me definitely did so I didn't have any support when he was alive I was just struggling I was struggling on 
Um, and my anxiety got so bad at one point. I don't, I mean, I never felt like I wanted to end my own life. But with the mental health training that I've got now, the, the training that I deliver to people, I know that suicidal feelings can manifest and they could come out sporadically. There was times when my health anxiety was so bad that I felt like, what is the point? I'm just a burden to my kids and my husband because I can't shift this mindset. I can't get out of this. So I always say to people that I think he's, I think he saved me. So yeah, it's, we were sucked into so much shame and stigma and it, it all kind of, it all unravels and it, it ends now. So yeah. That's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that because I know that, you know, anyone who would be in your position or anyone who's had that experience with a loved one has that feel, you know, they, they feel the shame, they feel the stigma that makes them feel like they need to keep it a secret. Um, and you said earlier on when you were speaking, you said, I know what I would do now. And I didn't want to interrupt, but I thought, I know people are listening and thinking, you know, what are those things? Like what, if looking back, cause you, you know, I'd love to talk more about what you're doing now with warrior kind. And you really have just, pulled out like all the lessons and you're just sharing them so generously. But when it comes to what you've learned, you know, being the daughter of someone who's struggling with alcoholism, what would be some of the effective ways that you can support someone, things that didn't work, and then also how you can look after yourself? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, the the first thing I always say to anybody that has a loved one um, with an alcohol dependency or alcohol use disorder is to not take the drink away from them, to not tell them to stop Mm. because we can't diagnose alcohol dependency. We're not doctors. Like only a doctor can tell somebody whether they're physically dependent on alcohol. Um, And it's dangerous to tell that person to stop drinking. So I think the first port of call, and I always say to everybody is encourage your loved one to go to a GP so they can assess what the next course of action would be. But I wish looking back that I would have done that in a more compassionate way and not in a way of oh, like getting frustrated or angry because that frustration and the anger and resentment just transferred to him and would have just like increased that shame, increased um, his embarrassment. It wasn't doing any of us any favours. So I wish that I would have broken down that stigma and I would have had a conversation with him about the stigma and encouraged him to get the support like a smoker would for instance if you say to somebody you're smoking too much it doesn't offend them it doesn't they'll probably agree with you and go yeah I need to cut down I, I, I do and I've had this conversation a good with point yeah I, I've actually had that I said to somebody I said if I told you you're smoking too much what would you say and he said yeah, I'd agree with you. I do. I smoke too much. I'd go to the pharmacy and I'd get some um, nicorette patches. I'm like, okay, if I told you you're drinking too much, what would you say? And you went, well, I'd be offended because it's rude. Like, why? Yeah. Why is it rude? Like, I've just told you you're smoking too much. What? And and they were like, okay, I get your point. I see what you're saying. So I wish that I would have made those that analogy to my dad and those comparisons to kind of break down that vicious cycle of shame. That's such a good comparison. It really is. I'm going to, I mean, I'm definitely going to remember that one. And why do you think there is like, why do you think the stigma still exists with alcoholism, 
when we know, I mean, we know how many people are affected by this. That's the, that's the thing that always blows me away is that it affects such a large percent of the population. So why do we still have the stigma? Oh, do you know what? We had this conversation yesterday with Sober Dave um, and he believes, and I, I agree with him, he believes it's, a, it's a, just ingrained in society and society sees it as though you're having that drink, you're drinking that, so mm-hmm. therefore you should be able to control that drink, which again, it's no different to smoking, is it? It's no different yeah. to um, somebody smoking, but I, I think it's just so manifested and ingrained within society which is really contradicting because it's the only drug you have to justify not taking or not having. Exactly. If I, if I go to a party then and I don't drink, it's automatically assumed I'm pregnant. I'm the designated driver. I'm on antibiotics. And if none of those apply, they go, oh, have you got a problem? I'm like, no, yeah. I just, I'm just traumatised. <laughs> <laughs> I don't drink. So if you have to justify why you're not drinking, and then you get mocked, like, especially in the UK, the culture's so bad. If you can't handle your drink, you get mocked for being a lightweight. Yeah. Um, and you're sober shamed. So if you're stay, if you're remaining sober, they'll go, you're, you're boring. Mm-hmm. Or just come on, just have the one, just have the one. Don't be boring. Um, so it's kind of enmeshed, isn't it? which is so hypocritical because on the same hand, the moment that you're in such a bad way, the drinks affected you. Because we, it's like, I I always kind of liken it to, so you're ashamed for not drinking, but when you overstep that line and you drink too much, they look at you, they shake their head and go, oh, you're a mess. Mm. But they've just shamed you into having alcohol. (laughs) Like, you don't know how you're going to react. Like, it's giving somebody a drink. It's like giving somebody a sleeping tablet and saying, don't fall asleep on this. Exactly. Make sure, do you know what? It's that kind of, and to me, it makes no sense. So I just think it's such, I think it's so deeply ingrained. And I think the root, the to get to the root of it is education we need to be raising more awareness we need to be advocating more we need to be talking about it more I always make a point of challenging people but not in a passive aggressive or a rude way because I never think that that doesn't get anybody anywhere people will switch off so like I had I had it not so long ago and somebody um used the word um pisshead which is just a real derogatory term to describe a drunk and I hate, I hate it. I hate even the term drunk. I hate that. And I challenged it. I said, well, like, that's really, that's a really unfair stereotype. You don't know what that person is drinking for. You don't know why they're drinking that much. You don't know what's going on internally for them to resort to that. Um, having a drink problem it is an illness because once it consumes you and once you're physically dependent on alcohol, then you've got no choice but to carry on drinking. So because you, the withdrawal effects are deadly. So alcohol to a person dependent on alcohol becomes like water to mm. any normal person. You need it to survive. Um, where am I going with this? I do go off on a tangent, don't I? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I no, I think you sidetracked. Yeah, I, was, I was asking, you <laughs> know, I love it because I think what you were just touching on with the education piece being so important. I really love that, you know, within your platform, you talk about, 
mental health too. And you, you don't just talk about the substance, but you know, what are some of the factors that are, you know, contributing to people's use? Um, and I think the education piece, cause I, you know, you have to believe if people understood that people were developing addictions because they were having a response to or trying to cope with a traumatic experience or mental illness, I think people would be a lot more sensitive than using these derogatory terms. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cause what I had asked was what, what you now know about, um, you know, how you would support someone who is, that was the original question that I was Yeah, asking. sorry. I've That's really, I've answer. really gone around, haven't I? I'm so sorry. I get so passionate that yeah. I just, I, I want to say all this stuff and I, yes. So I, I get sidetracked a little bit. Um, so I would, I think it's compassion and education. I mean, I, I said last night again to Sober Dave that if my dad was diagnosed with, I don't know, lung cancer, I use that as an example, because 90% of lung cancers in the UK are induced by smoking. And it's one of the most common causes of, um, or one of the most common types of cancer. If my dad was diagnosed with that, I would have been on the internet and I would have been Googling. I would have been Googling how to help him, how to support him, what the symptoms were, what we need to look out for. I would have educated myself, right? And I think we all would, any other physical illness, we would have been straight on the internet. We would have been re researching it. How can we help him? What treatments are in place? Um, I didn't do that with alcohol use disorder. I didn't realise it was an illness. I didn't realise until he died. It, and by that point, it was obviously too late. Um, so I didn't educate myself. I didn't bother to educate myself. I didn't look online. I didn't look at, okay, what symptoms do I need to look out for that would signal alcohol dependency or organ failure or liver cirrhosis or any of the Ill common illnesses that come from drinking too much? What do we need to look out for? Um, why is he drinking? What, what does it mean? Like, what do we need to do for the trauma, for the anxiety, for the depression? But we didn't do that. We were so, and I'm so ashamed of myself for being so caught up in that stigma and so worried about what other people think that it ultimately led to his death. We didn't educate ourselves. And I think, and we didn't give him any coping mechanisms. We didn't, we didn't give him that space or, or we didn't have that patience to um, help him and support him. And it's incredibly difficult, don't get me wrong. Like when you're trying to reason with somebody that's intoxicated, it is incredibly difficult to get through to them, especially when they're very strong-willed and stubborn like my dad was. It was incredibly difficult. And the frustration was very much, it was very real. It was frustration that I've never felt before. Um, and then you're dealing with your own anxieties and your own internal battles and trying to help somebody that then is refusing to be helped was it was very very difficult so I would say the root cause of all of this is lack of education it's lack of education it's that we've got the wrong mindset towards it like it we need to have a we need to respect it more we need to respect it for the substance or the drug that it is we need to respect um the very real side effects of it and just how addictive it is and how it's one of the few substances that your body becomes physically dependent on and withdrawal but can kill you. I don't think we have that understanding. If you stop smoking 40 a day, you don't get withdrawal symptoms and die from it. 
you might get withdrawal symptoms but you don't they don't kill you yeah I completely agree I even myself I didn't realize I mean my drive to get sober was not seeking all the health benefits it was to get away from the suffering of my addiction but it wasn't until I'd been sober for a long time that I started to really understand the impact that alcohol is from the book alcohol explained was very eye-opening to me about like the physiological impact on your body and I think it almost blows my mind how often you hear people say phrases like I'm going to wind down with a glass of wine or that we associate that with helping with anxiety or helping people sleep I mean like what are the kind of common myths that you hear and what are the things that you think are really important for people to know because not everyone listening I mean maybe people who are listening who have never had the consequences of drinking before or you know one of the things that I find to be so problematic is like the high functioning alcoholic and you know we see a lot of very high functioning people who struggle with addiction Uh, from alcoholism to drug addiction to even workaholism and in some ways they're celebrated for it like they're a great drinker or you know they they never stop working and achieving and all these behaviors that are really an indication of you know something that's going on with that person end up being celebrated so what do you think that people should be aware of about you know some of the dangers of alcohol and how it can impact your mental health um, I I think there's a real common misconception that alcoholics to be categorised or to be labelled um, with an alcohol use disorder or alcohol problem is that you have to hit rock bottom, is that you have to, you're, I don't know, you're drinking alcohol from a brown paper bag and you're on a park bench and you're homeless. That's far that's like no like that doesn't (laughs) that's that's not the case at all like there are alcoholics that are functioning functioning alcoholics if you're needing alcohol every day to get you to even to even relax you if you're coming home from work and I hear it so frequently from people I know they've had I've had a long day at work or just having a drink like it's an issue you're on a you're on a trajectory if you're using alcohol to relax after a hard day at work what are you going to do when you have that one trauma because we it's inevitable if you go through a life without ever having any trauma then I think you're very fortunate I think life is full of ups and downs we're inevitably going to suffer some kind of trauma at one point in our lives and it's having those coping mechanisms in place to deal with that. And I think they need to be taught from a young age. We need to be learning that at school. We need to learn how to deal with that at school. Um, I would say that the common myth is that alcohol dependency, you can still work. You can still come across as though you're functioning and that you're normal. My dad did. There were so many. We knew he wasn't. But outwardly, other people, and so many people said, I only saw him last week. He was fine. I, I always thought he was exaggerating. They said that wow. I, they thought I was exaggerating. Wow. They didn't realise that, no, behind closed doors, this was very much a problem. But what my dad was getting good at was hiding it. Mm-hmm. He was getting, and that's all part of the illness. I think people don't realise that too sometimes. 
even, you know, when people come out and say, you know, they're not drinking and they have a problem, I think with the best intentions of being supportive, people will say things like, oh, you're not that bad. Oh, you can have one. And it just yeah. shows the lack of awareness. If somebody has already gotten to a place where they've built up the strength to make that decision for themselves and people still think they're being supportive by saying you're not that bad or you can just have one, like, you know, or yeah, yeah or just not recognizing it in your case. Exactly, because we all we all um, break it down differently. We all metabolize it differently. Mm-hmm. My mom could drink a lot more than my dad and not be affected. But whereas my dad would be massively affected by two or three. Like it, we all break it down differently. It, it's all very um, unique to us. And I, I believe, so I think that comment of, oh, you can just have one, you've not got a problem or just, um, but what's, what's the word they use? Um, oh, what's the word where you're trying, I've got brain fog, side effect of COVID, sorry. I'm, I'm lost sorry no worries <laughs> I can add it in the show notes if you think yeah. of it later um people just think they can handle it just have one you'll be fine well no it one leads to two two leads to three three leads to four it, it it's a vicious cycle and I, I believe that um yeah it, it's not that simple is it it's really we're all different and it's all um I think it should be person-centered I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all kind of rule um but yeah sorry yeah <laughs> I had COVID like a couple of months ago and oh, since no. had COVID, I've just had the most terrible brain fog um I keep losing track of my thought or losing my words or yeah so it's well don't worry I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that <laughs> you know now that oh, so many horrible, of us have had it, it. But if you think of it, you can send me and I'll add it. I will. will. But um, yeah, I mean, what do you think in terms of like all the people who do have a habit of, you know, that nightly drink, you know, before going to bed or, you know, that's how you de-stress. I mean, that's how we celebrate. That's how we, you know, grieve. That's how we do everything. So when it comes to something, since let's just take the anxiety of, you know, take the example of anxiety. What have you learned are more effective coping mechanisms? You said you didn't drink really before, but what's been really helpful for you now that you've been able to go through this process and you've dealt with anxiety yourself? Um, Definitely talking. Mm -hmm. So I always feel that when I'm getting really anxious and it would all internalize. And then in my head, things would become irrational and the thoughts would just get worse and worse and worse until I'd actually sit down and talk to my husband and he's the most rational person I know and he'd help me rationalize and then I'd come away from that conversation I'd feel 10 times better and I'd feel relieved almost like I've let it all out and I feel so much better but also when I'm in a really when I can feel the physical side symptoms of my mental health peak meditation and just laying in a dark quiet room and just relaxing and meditating um that really really helps it helps calm and lower my heart rate it helps um helps me stop clenching my jaw and grinding my teeth um and I because I always feel it in my chest and all of that just kind of disappears and then you come away from having I don't know 15 20 minutes of meditating and you just feel ah, okay 
right I feel better now Mm, (laughs) so I would say talking meditating which is why I'm so open like I'm the most open I've ever been I'm so honest about how I feel and I because I mean if you're honest about how you're feeling you can't like can't be penalized for that you're being honest you're being open and I mean look what happened when we weren't being honest with ourselves and that's what I always think now like that happened we lost my dad when we weren't honest with ourselves when we had that mindset that's what happened that was dangerous and I I now make a point of being open and honest I let my children see me when I'm crying I'm open with my children about my anxiety I still have panic attacks occasionally I've still had like I don't suffer with health anxiety anymore but there's still anxiety that are business related and I suffer with that. And I think I'm naturally, I'm a very, I'm, I'm an anxious person naturally and I'm dealing with that and I'm learning coping mechanisms. Um, and I feel like having that open, honest conversations with my children will educate them and help them when they're older. They'll know that, okay, mum, you had this. How did you cope? And they'll come and talk to me. Whereas I... I brushed it under the carpet thinking that I don't want to show any weakness. I don't want to show any vulnerability. I don't want people to think that I'm in. So I I kind of own it now. I own it. Yes, we've gone through that. Yes, I used to think like that. This is what happened. This is why I don't do that anymore. And this is why I'm so open and honest now. I think talking about it is so important. How did you get there? I'm really curious because it took me, I think I was particularly slow to speak openly it took me a really really long time to be very public and so I'm always interested to hear like how you got to a place was it was it just kind of like something happened and then you went from a switch flipped or was it like more of a slow progression and you had to take baby steps to get there um I it wasn't long after my dad died I think Mm -hmm. it was it was processing I think it was some after having some therapy um after after my dad died and then I suddenly realized it, it was kind it was exactly that a flip switch like a, a switch just flipped and I thought oh my god that silence that silence and that ignoring it and brushing it under the carpet did nobody any favors which is why like it and that just kind of it was from there really and I became so much more open-minded um and I learned so much more about it. I actually went out of my way. I attended Al-Anon meetings. I wanted to understand it from my dad's perspective. I wanted to learn. Um, and I felt like I owed that to him as well to make sure that we learned from that, his death. We needed to come, we needed to learn something from it. Like, like I said earlier on, I didn't want him to die in vain or there'd be no purpose to it. And then it'd be that kind of death where we just brush it under the carpet and tell everybody he had a heart attack and not how he really died because we're too embarrassed to share with the world like what happened to us. Yeah. I, I, I felt that was toxic. Mm. That was very toxic. And all that did was just accumulate anxiety, years and years and years worth of anxiety that manifested internally within me. That took a lot of therapy for me to deal with it. So that's why I'm so honest and open now it was literally it it was a traumatic moment that led me it it was kind of like a um light switch so when it comes to sharing was the response always positive or did you encounter any resistance 
as you started to speak about your dad's story and what you had been through? Um, yeah, I would say there's definitely been resistance there. I think there's been more positive than there has resistance. What One thing that surprised me was the more I talked, the more people would come out and say to me that, yeah, I've I've gone through that. And they, they were more forthcoming with me, maybe not with everybody else, but they felt like they could talk to me. Um, because I think once you share your experience and people relate, it makes, it creates powerful ripple effect, which is how Warrior Kind started. It started off as a Facebook group where we were sharing our stories. Um, and then there's been resistance from people that, and friends that I no longer speak to have resisted and don't agree with me being so open. Um, they think it's, well, they, they think that I'm using um, a tragic situation for personal gain which is absolutely just couldn't be further from the truth because there are times like doing this work can be so draining mentally. Sometimes I think I wish that my life would be a lot more simpler if I was doing, if I I could close my laptop at five o'clock at night and not have to respond to a load of messages, life would be a lot more simpler. And if I didn't have the worry and stress of keeping a a not-for-profit business up and running I mean it there's a lot more like so much more to it and I I would get angry at those people but now I'm not now I kind of think you're just not in that place yet Mm. to deal with those difficult emotions like I am and that's fine that's we're just on different paths and we're at different stages of our lives and I mean talking I strongly believe talking like this and talking so openly helps save lives as well I think the amount of people, I mean, we encourage that with Warrior Kind. We encourage open, honest conversations. We believe talking about our mental health should be as easy as talking about having a headache. It shouldn't mm. be something that's shied away from or embarrasses people to get the support and the help they need. Um, so that's why we provide educational resources, training, and we have our own app, peer, peer-to-peer support community app, which is a little bit like a social media platform but specifically designed to talk about our mental health. Um, That's incredible. But yeah, and it's so important. I mean, those conversations, just one conversation with somebody that's gone through something similar um, may encourage them to seek out professional support. We like to think of it as like a preventative measure, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I love that. And I asked that question about the, about resistance because I think, you know, as long as we have this society is, you know, so influenced by the stigma of addiction. And I think it's very, you know, common for people to get triggered by things. And it would be so easy for you to internalize some of that. But it's so obvious that, you know, I've heard, you know, I've heard you speak before. So I've like heard of some of these challenges you come up against. And even hearing earlier on when you were sharing that what people were saying at the hospital, which is unimaginable. But I think the fact that you have created this space where people can have a supportive community, because I know not everyone, you know, if they decide to get sober, not everyone is going to have anyone in their immediate circle. You know, sometimes you might come from a family where everyone is heavy drinkers. All of your friends are heavy drinkers. It's deeply ingrained in the work culture that you come from. So can you, I know you talked a little bit about where you're kind just now, but can you explain the whole vision behind that and what you offer and what kind of resources people can get there? Yeah, of course. So 
like I said, it, we're all about normalizing healthy conversations. That is the core of our mission. It's to have these open, honest conversations. And we do that by sharing articles online. Um, we create, we've got our own in-house video production team and we create something called warrior stories, which are um, genuine, authentic lived experiences, people telling their, their stories to camera. And we create like a 10, 15 minute video about their experience. And um, they're designed as um, just ways to encourage conversation and to inspire people um, and motivate them to get support and know that there's always light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. Um, so we have um, we have that and we've got our peer-to-peer -peer support community app, which are um, again, the social media platform for people to access a supportive community, people going through similar experiences. And we also offer um, bespoke training for organizations and individuals who want to improve their awareness around mental health. We've got our own mental health um, expert, um, he's absolutely incredible. He trains um, mental health first aid, which is licensed by MHFA England. Um, and so we deliver um, that kind of training, what to do in a crisis, like in a suicide crisis. We've actually trained up some of our members to deal with that as well, because we were finding that people find it easier sometimes to write into a closed Facebook group or a closed group within our app about feeling um like they can't carry on anymore so we want we wanted like community members within that group trained to be able to deal with that kind of situation because it comes up and it's all about signposting and what and how like signposting signposting to the right services um because that's all really at, at that at that level of training you can really do um and then we've got our podcast, which is coming, Warrior Talk, which is going to complement the warrior stories where we're going to talk to some real inspirational people. And the idea around the podcast is to have really open, honest, honest, brutally honest conversations about um, everything and anything. I mean, it's not just I mean, I think mental health is so broad. I mean, we can talk honestly about finances. I think finances, especially during the pandemic, I think that has a massive effect on our mental health it's a good Massively. example it's another one you're supposed to not talk about that has exactly to be secret. so we can't yeah. share resources on how we're supposed to handle these things exactly we have to quietly struggle which is why that's the whole point in worries for is to have open honest conversations that society doesn't like talking about and mm. um, we all want to know yeah but nobody wants to like nobody wants to talk about it so i think again i think that's a real interesting topic but um yeah, so it's it's breaking taboos, it's breaking stigmas, it's stopping the silence, um, and just being liberated and empowered by what we've been through, what we're going through, rather than feeling ashamed by it, um, which is where the name Warrior Kind came from. It's a spin-off of humankind. I love that. Um, so yeah, so yeah, there's there's a lot, there's a lot that's happening. Um and then we're going to be providing educational resources. So we're, we've got some um, in the pipeline for this year to film some mental health experts to talk about what to expect during a therapy session or what to expect if you need to go to A&E in a crisis. Um, we want to remove the fear and remove the unknown because um, a lot of the time people have the very 
Hollywood movie kind of expectation of that you're going to go to a counsellor and you're going to get locked up in a hospital or you're going to be laying down on a couch and it's mm-hmm. that stereotypical um perspe- perception that's come mm-hmm. from media and tv so we just want to remove that and show people actually you know if you go to your gp this is what you can expect if you go to a this is what you can expect um if you're in financial difficulties, these are the resources, this is what you can do. This is a story. So we just want to, we want to remove all of the unknown and give people the resources to know where they can get support from. I love that. That's so amazing. And I'm going to be linking the details to all of that. Is there anywhere else that people should know that they should follow you or where, where would be the best place to get access to all of this? So um, I'm, probably the most active and vocal on my personal Instagram account, which is Sarah underscore Drage, um, which is D-R-A-G-E. Um, and all of the links are in a bio um, on Linktree. So you can get access to um, warriorkind.co.uk. Um, you can get access to my TED Talk, to my Facebook group, um, groups and my Facebook page and LinkedIn. So yeah, it's all on there. Okay, perfect. And I know um, just kind of in closing, a lot of people are going to feel really inspired by this conversation to do something. Is there, you know, and we all obviously have a role to play when it comes to breaking down the stigma, whether we're personally affected by addiction or, you know, or we feel as though we have no connection to it, although we all do, I believe in some way. So what would be something that you would like to just ask people to do as a next step or, you know, what can we do to help support your mission to end the stigma? I think without sounding like I'm trying to plug my TED talk, because I'm, it's really not about a personal gain thing at all. I would say that's probably a good starting point because it's a I real... second that that's how I found yeah. you and that's what inspired this conversation so I think I think that kind of just encompasses our family experience and what we went through as a family and how that mindset affected us as a family and what happened as a consequence um but it also challenges the thought process and there's been so many the reason I say it is because there's so many people that say to me when they've watched it I never thought about it from that perspective before you've changed the way I view people addicted to alcohol. Um, so I think that's a really good starting point. And from then it's it's challenging other people as well when they use derogatory terms, mm. when they say that they don't deserve support, they're doing it to themselves, it's self-inflicted, is to think about it differently and be a little bit more open-minded and compassionate as to why. Why is somebody addicted to alcohol? Why are they binge drinking? Why are they a grey area drinker? What is going on in their lives? Which means they have to self-medicate with the euphoric side effects of alcohol because that's why, if we're really honest, it's the it's the momentary, momentary um, piece of euphoria that you get, isn't it, from having a drink. It's like having a cigarette. It's euphoric to begin with. And then obviously the side effects with the hangovers aren't very nice, but people are doing it to escape from something they're doing it to relax what are they going through and I think it's having that compassion and that empathy and understanding to know that it's it goes far deeper than what we understand Um, and I would say education it's education oh and don't sober shame 
if somebody's choosing mm. not to drink yeah. whether it whether they're choosing yeah. not to drink for cultural reasons whether they're choosing not to drink because they're pregnant and they don't want to tell you or mm-hmm. or they're like me they've alcohol has traumatized them to the point where they they can't that they just don't just don't sober shame you wouldn't you wouldn't say to somebody oh come on just have a cigarette just have one why are you not having a cigarette don't be boring yeah like, thank you, you for bringing that. up that word sober shame that needs to be like a commonly used and understood expression yeah. because I think most people will be like have never even thought about that before but um that's such an important point and there's one other thing as well I think sober Dave on Instagram um he's a gray area drinking coach absolutely amazing like he shares his perspective um, and what he's been through. I think he really shares some great tips and some great resources. So I think he's another one that if you have a difficult relationship with alcohol, he's a good person to follow and be inspired by. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a, another great account. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a deeply personal conversation. You are so generous with your story and also so informative. Like I gained so much and I know the people who are listening did too. So I'm so looking forward to everything that comes out of Warrior Kind, all the new education and your new podcast. So thank you so much. I really appreciate what you're doing. Oh no, thank you. Thanks for having me.